0: To give you a, a Hebrew phrase that you might find handy. It's Tovu Vavohu. Tohu Vavohu. It's the first two words of Genesis chapter one, verse two. The earth was tohu vavohu, formless. And void. Complete chaos. An utter mess. Probably often what a parent says when they open their child's door and look in their bedroom. Tohu vavohu. (laughs) Utter chaos. A mess within a mess. But our God, whose spirit hovered over the deeps, spoke and spoke order into creation. Let there be light, and there was. All the way down, and as we look at creation, we see that our God indeed is a God of order. And I have my Bible upside down, so I better flip it over. (laughs) Just our atmosphere. It's made up of about 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 2% carbon dioxide. Perfect, perfect to support liquid water and a complex life system. So think about the symbiotic relationships between animals and plants. We as, you know, you know people that need oxygen, we take in oxygen and we breathe out. Carbon dioxide. And plants, they need carbon dioxide and they breathe out oxygen. Symbiotic relationship between the two. Then our our moon, which is 400 times less the size of our sun. But 400 times away, the distance from the sun, excuse me, the moon to the earth, is 400 times greater from the moon to the sun. And when a solar eclipse happens, like it did this last August, isn't it interesting that it's perfect? It covers the sun except for the corona. And that moon in this gravitational pull keeps us at 23.5 degrees as we go around the sun 365 and a quarter days. That's why the leap year comes in. Right? But it keeps our our earth from going from extreme changes as far as seasons. It's, it's subtle, although I'm sure some of us felt when the snow first showed up like, that ain't subtle. But God has made our creation a one of order, the migration of birds and even just mankind himself, who is made in God's image. We are self-aware, we are able to uh, Reason complexly, that's why Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. We have a power of volition. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm not here to prepare a message about creation versus evolution. No. Rather, I'm pointing to the fact that God in his character wants to be reflected in the worship of his people. God in his character wants to be reflected in the worship of of his people that they give to him. Not only his redemptive work individually, which we're going to celebrate a little bit later in the Lord's Supper, his work upon the cross, what we've been singing about, but his redemptive work even corporately. Think about this. Men and women who are aliens and strangers to a holy God, men and women who are aliens and strangers to one another, God reconciles them to himself makes them his children, puts them in a body, gives them the gift of his Holy Spirit, gives them gifts of the Holy Spirit that to be used in that body for the benefit of everyone, that everyone might be built up, that that might be an expression of love amongst one another. But a church in Corinth struggled with this They were self-consumed with expressing their own individual spirituality in the worship service. Exercising spiritual gifts for self-promotion. Look at me. Look what I've got. Look what I can do. And especially as we've been looking at the chapter of 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues seems to be one that they were specifically fond of looking, at least some of them in the church, wanting to flex their muscles. And so we define tongues as a spirit-inspired, unintelligible utterances consisting of human languages that are not understood or possibly angelic language not naturally understood by humans. So last week we were in chapter... Verses 1 through 25 and we talked about what, one of the problems with tongues is that When somebody utters tongues, nobody understands them unless there's somebody there to interpret. And because nobody understands, no one is built up. No one is edified. Better to use a gift like prophecy where what is being uttered is understood and the church is strengthened, encouraged, and comforted. So here's where we pick up the story, if you will. We're in chapter 14. Of First Corinthians and we're looking at verse 26 through 40. This is the Apostle Paul writing continuing on in this this argument or what he's trying to bring forth to this church. What then shall we say brothers? When you come together each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak, one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes, someone who is sitting down to someone who is sitting down the first speaker should stop for you all can prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets for God is not a God of disorder but of peace as in all of the congregations of the saints women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he's a prophet or otherwise spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Let me pray for us, and then we'll continue on with this word today. (coughs) Lord, we are grateful for your word that you've given to us. And uh, just by reading this, this is indeed a challenging word but it's here for a reason. So would you give us eyes to see, and would you take the words that I have prepared and use them for us to understand, for us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to obey you and to be your people. We thank you for Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us to yourself. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds so that we might hear what you have to say. Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. So this is probably one of the top five difficult passages to preach. Okay? It's not easy. So I'm I'm not saying feel sorry for me. If you'd like to, that'd be fine. But this, as I prayed, is is in God's word for a reason and has something to say to us. But we need to keep our eyes, not get distracted from the main point. You know, verses 34 and 35 are kind of like, well, what is that about? About women keeping silent in the church? And, and we're going to get there. But I, I want to I keep the main point here in mind, which is the building up of the body. Get back to verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Here's the point. Utterances in worship are for building up. For building up the body. And notice that Paul acknowledges that it seems like everybody in the Corinthian church is eager to share something. Eager to contribute something in an utterance. It's kind of like when I get to I get to teach Awana for council time about twice a year. It's really cool, you know. And I try to engage the kids in asking questions, and they're all oh oh pick me pick me. Now I give out candy, so maybe that's the reason. But they all want to they all want to say something. They all want to do something. If I don't give some direction, it does get quite chaotic. So. But I also wanted you to notice that it's not just tongues and prophecy that Paul lists off here. He starts off with a psalm or or a hymn. These songs that the people sang during that time were there to affirm the faith and sometimes to store something in your heart and mind of, of belief. You know, that last song, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and He's given us new life. It's kind of it's kind of a creedal statement, isn't it? Very similar to what the, the church would sing. A couple examples of that might come from Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. You know, let this, this mind be in you, that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but... Humbled himself as a servant, and you know, from that we have the whole development of the fact that Jesus comes and empties himself and dwells on this earth as a man, and yet he was fully God. That that challenge of the the incarnation, God in the flesh. Or there's Second Timothy two, verses two through eleven through thirteen. He says this is a this is a a common uh, st- statement that should be should be grasped that if we, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, these are things that the people use to kind of solidify their faith and they memorize these things. Remember, most of those people didn't have a copy of a Bible. If, they'd come, if they had a copy of the scriptures, it might be in coming together. Also, a word of instruction, teaching, or insight. You know, commenting on the scriptures, how how now shall we live, or revelation. Someone, God has revealed something to them. Maybe it's a prophecy, through a dream, but God is showing them something. And then, with a tongue that's paired with an interpretation, because tongue should only be used in a church where everyone can be built up or edified. So the principle here is all these must be done for the strengthening of the church. need to keep that goal in mind. And by the way, here's an opportunity for you to strengthen the church a little bit by sharing your own heart. On November 19th, Alex shared about our our Thanksgiving service. It's one of the coolest times we ever have here at Berean. Because we give opportunity for people to to share about what God has been doing in their life. And I'll tell you what, it is wonderful. It strengthens and builds up the church. So I want to encourage you to be thinking, how has God met you this year? How has God showed himself? What has he done? What can you be thankful for? And you know what, if you come and share that word, you can't preach a whole sermon, but if you share for just a couple minutes, boy, that will encourage the church. And I want to encourage you to be a part of that. But Paul moves back again to the instruction for use of tongues in verse 27. And if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet, and the church should speak uh, and speak to. Excuse me, should keep quiet in the church and speak to to himself and to God. Already reiterating what Paul said already in verses 5, verse 13. If you're going to speak in tongues, there has to be someone there to interpret so that we can understand and the church can be built up. If not, keep it to yourself. But if so, if someone is there to interpret, it needs to be one person at a time. Not everybody can speak. You know, there are times when I'm sitting at my dinner table with one tween and two teenage daughters. And they're all speaking at once. And I think they're speaking English. (laughs) But it's a bit chaotic. One at a time. One at a time. And only two or three so that tongues don't overrun the service. Paul sees merit in tongues. But only when it's there, where there's an interpreter to edify everyone else. Now here's the question. Is tongues... For today, is it a gift that God is employing today? Well, if you were here last week, I said, you know, Berean is a church that is open but cautious. Open but cautious. And if someone would come to us and want to speak in a tongue, we'd say, first of all, do we know of anybody who can interpret? If not, we'd say, you know what, we're glad that you have that gift. We pray that that will edify you in your private times, but since we don't have someone here to interpret, we're going to follow Scripture. We're going to stay according to God's Word that He's revealed for us so that there won't be any misunderstanding, anyone holding themselves up higher than another. And we want to trust that if God has that for us, He will bring somebody to interpret. Because God does want to speak to His people. He really does. But trust that God will provide locally if that is His will. So secondly, then we go into the instruction for prophecy. Look at verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. Some differences between now and then. The church then and now. We do have God's full word. He's given it to us. We we have a little more revelation recorded in God's Word, than they did. Also, you know, the church meetings were often house churches. Much smaller than what we have here. Maybe it's just this section of the whole congregation. So much smaller. Much more opportunity to give and take, interact. We have a much more formal setting here, don't we? And so, um, and that's not a problem. But, here's the thing. It's the same Holy Spirit and we're open to the fact that the the living God may want to say something through one of its members. On the other hand, think about this. This is pretty heady stuff to come out and say, Thus saith the Lord. Right? Say, God has told me something. That is pretty heady stuff. And there's a call for weighing, those, weighing what's being said by those who are listening. You know, he says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 19 through 22, where he says, Do not quench the Spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So how do you weigh it? How do you weigh it? Because there are people who have come and said, Yeah, God spoke to me. And we know that some have done it as false prophets to deceive, to take advantage of people, to manipulate people. Some have deluded themselves that my will is God's will. The classic case is the case of the, at a Bible college where a young man is so obsessed with a young lady, you know, and he finally comes to her and says, I think it's God's will that we get married. Well, If God is in that, then he's going to tell the young lady as well. But we need to be careful. How do we discern? (laughs) We're Bereans, so number one answer is we're going to see if it's in conflict with God's Word, first of all, right? We're going to see if, if this is saying something contradictory to God's Word. Number two, is it going to lead me astray from Christ somehow? What's being said, because everything needs to exalt Christ and not uh, detr- detract from him. Also, is, is the word given something that's really advancing a worldly, a worldly agenda rather than the kingdom of God? And then there's just the wait test. Someone makes a prediction and says, okay, let's wait and see if it happens. If it comes true, comes to pass. Does this person also have a track record of of God showing them something? And boy, that that seems to be happening. There's also just the issue of the person's Christian character. (laughs) You know, are they one person here and another person over here? Is there an integrity of their faith with what, how they're living their lives? And then last of all, you know what? Sometimes God just gives people in the, in the congregation discernment. Discernment that there's something not right. You know, one of the gifts that were listed in chapter 12 verse 10 is that of distinguishing spirits. Someone just said, you know what? I'm not sure what's going on, but God is saying there's something not right. And more often than not, we should listen to that, that little voice because God gives, God gives a discernment to his people. And then there's just the promise of James, chapter 1, verse 5, that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives richly without finding fault. Again, it's the trust that God, if God wants to speak to his people, he's going to confirm that. He's going to make that known. He's going to do what it is so that his people can hear. And By the way, the similar criteria should be applied when we're talking about tongues as well. But moving on, verse 30. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Again, similar instruction. Only two or three should, be, should have the opportunity to speak one at a time. But then, he says, but if someone you know, ha- has a revelation who's sitting down, the other one who's standing up should sit down and let the other one speak. Normally, interruption seems rude, doesn't it? Like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's what's going on here? Yet, a revelation is given to another while the other is standing. It's the willingness to show deference to another and allow them to speak. Allow another to speak. Remember, Corinthians, the Corinthian church has a problem in the sense that they're all clamoring for an opportunity to stand up and be heard, right? This is a a humble attitude that says, no, maybe God wants to speak through somebody else, and I need to sit down and listen. It's an attitude of humility. And then he continues on in verse 31 For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Not that everyone probably had the gift of prophecy, but there's an opportunity that God might want to speak through you. But everyone needs to do so in turn, because the goal, again, at the end of the day, is that everyone may be instructed and encouraged, as it says at the end of verse 31, for the benefit of others. And by the way, you can't blame the inspiration of the Holy Spirit just taking you over as an excuse to keep speaking. Because in verse thirty two says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. You can't say, No, the spirit made me do it. No, one of the gifts of the Spirit is self-control. And you can have enough control over that to stop speaking. But now Paul makes a restatement, or should I say, a reframing of this guiding principle in verse thirty three. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the saints. God is wanting to have his character reflected in the worship of his people. He's not a God of disorder. So when multiple people are trying to speak at their own will, when they think that the Spirit is inspiring them, Not in order. Everyone trying to speak, whether it can be understood or not, that's chaotic. That's chaotic. It's not helpful for understanding or edification. He is a God of peace. Not just peace and quiet of the clamor stopping, but he's a God of peace and peace relationally. We're not in competition with each other, trying to get in there and have our say. I can defer and let God speak through another. I can listen to what God wants to say, perhaps, through another, one at a time. And that brings about peace. It brings about edification. You know, one of our strengths here at Berean Community Church is we have what's called Life Together Groups. It's where we sit down and we look at God's Word together in smaller groups. Small as four, as large as 12, I think. But we're talking. There's conversation. You know, one of the ways that you can be really loving is if you're a person who's really keen to want to answer, is not to answer. And maybe give someone who's more quiet an opportunity to share. Because I find that people who are quiet are thinking. And there's something going on in their heart and mind, and they need to be heard. And those of us who are quick to answer, and I'm one of them, I I readily admit, we need to sometimes just be quiet and be uh, thoughtful of others and see how God might want to speak through another. (laughs) Now, here comes the fun part. Instruction for inquiring women. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at, at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Let's close in prayer. I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> so how should we understand these verses, Right? In chapter, 11, in chapter 11, women were called to respect the created order, that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman. That male leadership should be respected. And that was expressed in women covering their heads in worship, especially as they would pray and prophesy. Now maybe the head covering thing is probably something that's lost to us culturally, but that's what that was the principle to respect the created order, what God had set forward. However, within this we see that silence of women in the in the worship service is not, is not absolute. They could pray, they could even prophesy. So what is the solution? And I'm going to run through some very quickly and start with the most. The worst ones first and kind of move on down the line. First of all, some suggest that Paul was actually quoting the Corinthians themselves. That this is what they were doing, and he was going to turn around and correct them. Well, that sounds good, but it doesn't make sense in what follows in verses 36 and following. And some say that Paul kind of made a, a straw man in, in chapter 11, but next he he really expressed what he really thought here in chapter 14. And I trust that God, God's Holy Spirit would not make him a man of, he would not be a man of integrity if that were true. But some suggest that this is not, these are not Paul's words at all. That these are not Paul's words at all. That they are what's called a Gloss. And a gloss is in, in a manuscript. You've got the manuscript, and then you've got some notes for understanding on the side that are written in by the scribe, and somehow they made their way into the text. And here's, here's the argument for it. You've got to understand that in the text that we have, there are two traditions. There's the Western text, and there's the Eastern text. Okay, just, just locate where uh, it's just a geographical thing. But in the Eastern text, it reads just as I've read the Bible here, OK? In the Western text, they take these two verses 34 and 35, move them out, move everything down, and then put them in where this is 34, 39 and, and 40 are. So they just remove that from the argument in the logic, and then just put it as a whole of the thought at the very end of the chapter. And well, the question is, well, how did this happen? What, who would do this? Why would they do it? And the thought is, well, you know, one tradition moved it in here. The other tradition said, now that's too complex. Let's pull it out of this because it doesn't make sense. And the, and the logic of the argument, which is about gifts and expressing them that way, so we're just going to put it at the end. It's very attractive because um, there's no, you know, he says... Um, women should be in submission as the law says, but he doesn't make a quotation from the law. But earlier in this same letter, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 21 of this same chapter, there's a quote from the Old Testament. So there's a suspicion is this truly Pauline? And glosses have gotten into Scripture, it's true. An example would be uh, John 5, 4, which is a story about Jesus meeting the the man by the pool of Bethesda. There's there's an extra commentary about that an angel would come to time to time and stir up the water, and the first one in there was the one who was healed. That was an explanation of of what was said about about the, the man's response to Jesus. The thing is that that statement isn't found in our earliest manuscripts. So we believe it to be a gloss. Something that was inserted a little bit later for understanding. And the whole end of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16. After 8, it it seems very abrupt. And so somebody kind of wrote from verse 9 an ending that kind of made sense to kind of, you know, be in line with what Matthew said. The problem is we don't find those in our earliest manuscripts. But here's the problem with, and, uh, you know, as a preacher, it'd be nice to say, yeah, that's not pulling and throw it out. It makes much more sense in the argument. But I don't have that convenience. And the problem here is this, with that argument, is that these comments are not missing from any of the manuscripts that we have, including our earliest, which is about... Second century A.D. to third century A.D. It's not missing. It was in the text. It's there. Also, Paul is not immune from making random comments. He isn't. If you've read his statements, there's sometimes it's like, "Whoa, where are you going with that, Paul?" First Timothy three uh, five twenty three is interesting. Paul is talking about now. Don't be hasty to lay on hands, right? He's, he's talking about how this is very serious. You don't want to be involved with people's sinfulness. And then he stops and says, oh, by the way, stop drinking water. Drink a little wine for your stomach. But by the way, don't lay on him. it's like, what? Squirrel, you know? So Paul is not immune to kind of putting in a random thought there every once in a while. But here's the thing for us as people who want to follow God's word. We need to be careful not to dismiss a passage just because it's difficult or because we have a challenge in understanding it. Because here's the danger. The danger is that all of a sudden we become an authority over God's Word rather than us being under the authority of God's Word. We need to be very careful about that. It's the first thing that Satan says to the woman. Did God say X? X? And our fleshly nature is to say, yeah, let's do what's good for our flesh. So we need to be careful of that. But here's the principle I want to approach this with. And it's a good principle for all of us as we're reading the Bible. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Again, back to chapter 11. Silence for women in the church is not absolute. They are allowed to pray. They're allowed to prophesy. And in verse 31 of this chapter it says, for you all can prophesy. That all included women of the church. So they had an opportunity to bring forth something to build up the body. Utterances that would build up the body. If you will. And the context here, the context of this passage is weighing the, and discerning the prophetic utterances of tongues, or of prophecy? Is this really from the Holy Spirit? Verse 29, Others should weigh carefully what is said. And that may have involved questioning, inquiry, and maybe even a little bit of grilling, perhaps. This in a church where male leadership is to be respected and esteemed. So for a woman to inquire Of a man in the church about the prophetic utterance given, especially if it were her own husband that she was inquiring of. It could have been viewed as disrespectful, even contemptuous, or and disgraceful. Better for her to go home and ask her husband about it and engage him about that. That's what I think is going on here in this passage. And by the way, that does not make women intellectually inferior or make them less spiritually insightful. I find that there are many women whose intellect and spiritual insight rival men, including their husband. But ultimately, it is a call to obey and fill the role that God has called you to play. That's what this is about. As for a specific scripture, as to where, where do we find in the law that women are to be in submission and to be silent, maybe you might look at Genesis three sixteen, which is a curse passage where the husband was to rule over his wife, but again, that's a curse passage. It seems that the new covenant would bring freedom. I think, really, it's a general understanding that the law does not allow a woman to behave in an insubordinate manner that brings shame to her husband. But here's the bigger picture of the passage and how all these things fit together. There are people, for the sake of the church, for the sake of order, are asked to remain silent. The person who speaks in a tongue with no interpreter The the person who is standing and prophesying and somebody is given a revelation and and they're asked to acquiesce, to sit down and let someone else speak. And the woman who is tempted to start asking questions in a service about weighing a prophecy or an utterance. God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And that's what he wants to be reflected in this church. Now Paul knew that some of the things he had to say, that he was going to be resisted, especially in this church. And so Paul asserts his apostolic authority. Verse 36, Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or otherwise spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm, I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. But if he ignores this, let him ignores us. He himself will be ignored. You know the whole tenor of this letter is Paul trying to bring correction to a church that has decided to go its own way. They're arguing with him. The Corinthians want to flex their own brand of spirituality, an emphasis on self-display, and Paul is trying to bring them in alignment with the gospel of grace. That what you have received is by God's kindness and mercy. Including the gifts that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. And by the the way, do you know the word charisma comes out of the root word for grace? You've been given a grace so that you can impart grace to another. That's what I want you to understand. That's what Paul was trying to, to get to his... His audience in first in Corinth, they were enamored with their proclamatory gifts, and Paul saying, "Look I'm the apostle, I'm the sent one Jesus sent to bring you the gospel, and when I speak to you, I am speaking the word of God. that's the authority he assumes, and he rightfully so. so you need to acknowledge." that what I am speaking is the Lord's Word. Otherwise, if you ignore it, you will be spiritually ignored as well. And I think that's good counsel for us, that anyone who wants to have a serious spiritual impact dare not ignore or minimize the Word of God. We always have to acknowledge that this is God's Word. So Paul closes and ends this thought with what I call a, a gift-use recap, 34 and 40. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. God may want to speak through some of us, to the rest of us, and we shouldn't fear that. We've got some good provision to work through that we stay with God's Word, we'll be okay. But in a corporate worship service, it can't be a free-for-all where everyone just stands up and has something to say and says it. Everything needs to be done in an orderly and fitting way in order that we can impart grace to each other. It's for the building up of the body and to do so is quite loving, and God wants to be reflected in that. A grace, imparting grace to one another. And it's our custom here at the Breen Community Church to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember the grace that's been imparted to us through the Lord Jesus Christ.